You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my ever-cheerful podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. How are you doing today, Lisa? Doing great today, Carlos. How are you doing? I'm good. How's the weather in Canada? Oh, you know, it's a sunny day. It's cold. It was flurrying and sunny at the same time earlier. So, you know, it's a typical winter day. Lovely. It is getting chilly, which is kind of nice. All right, listeners, today we are talking about the top things that get in the way of sales effectiveness. So to help us out with this is someone who studies this each year, our fellow value-selling colleague, David Bick, who is also a fellow Canadian and part of the Visualize team under value-selling, former Gartner and Meta superstar for 20-plus years of sales experience. David, thank you for taking the time today and welcome to the show. Thank you. And that introduction just made my day, so thank you. We work together a lot, so it's not like we don't know each other, but I got to still ask the question. So, David, what is something that you're passionate about that those that might only know you through work might be surprised to know about you? One thing I love doing in my spare time, I've been involved with basketball all my life, and I've been through the journey of a player, and anybody who's met me kind of goes, yeah, I can see the basketball connection. And that will come up later on in the call. I imagine the conversation, imagine. But I've now gotten to the point where I've been through player, coach. I've been an executive on community. I've been refereeing for about the last 10 years. And I love doing the refereeing because it's a chance to continue to learn, continue to evolve, continue to be involved in the game. And quite frankly, it keeps me fit because there's no chance for substitutions you're always moving, and it just seems the players are getting younger and faster every year. And to stay up with the game, you got to be in shape. So I'm very passionate about doing it. A lot of doing it does it always work out perfectly? No, but it's but it's a great experience every time I do it, and I get to meet new people. That's great, and you know, like it's good to have a passion that just by chance keeps you fit, right? One of mine is reading, and yeah, that doesn't help me lose weight. So, <laughs> and is eating cookies, and for some reason, that's not working for me either. Not working either? Yeah, jeez. We got to find something else to be passionate about, Carlos. I just had a cookie for breakfast, so let's not even go there. So, well, you know what? It's tis the season. <laughs> you got to justify a cookie for breakfast every now and then. Well, apart from cookies for breakfast and basketball, let's talk a little bit more about you, David. So tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are today. And on top of that, what led you to building this list of your top 10 things that might stand in our way each year? Because it sounds like it's a very interesting story. So when I came out of university, did had no idea what I wanted to do. And somebody said, have you thought about sales? And I looked at them like... My sales was Herb Tarlick, white belt, white shoes, and, but quickly got over that, got into my first sales job. It was, it was awesome. It was amazing. Didn't realize what it could be, but the shift for me took place, I don't know how many years ago, but you know, the fact that I was with Gartner, great organization, great research, wicked smart people. I had been with Gartner for somewhere around 10 years, and, and I just started to feel an itch. I had to make a change. I had to do something different, but I didn't want to leave the company. And I talked to a couple of folks that I really respected. And one of them said, have you thought about sales training? And I looked at them like, have you not met me? Like, that's not me. And they said, no, no, I think this is what it is. So I went through the process of understanding it and started to think, hmm, maybe there's something really cool in this for me. 
And it was two people. And if you are listening to this, Mike and Lisa, you know who you are. You had my back. You went on a limb. And it was one of the best decisions I think I ever made because not only did I learn about the training business, about personal development, coaching, but facilitation and what facilitation really meant. So I spent probably three years doing that at Gartner, working with individual contributors, new hires, coaches, leaders. It was an amazing experience. And then I wanted to go back into the field. And when I went back into the field, one of the things I realized that I really missed was doing the coaching facilitation specifically around value selling. And so that's how I ended up connecting directly to value selling and visualize. And to this day, that's how I get to work with uh, smart and talented folks like the two of you. So diving into the second, I hit you with like three different questions. But the second part of my question, so you've got your top 10 things that get in the way of our sales efficiency and effectiveness. What led you to want to start to compile this each year? Because you mentioned before we started recording that you've been doing this for a number of years. So it comes down to two things. One was just what we do, and another one was an observation that somebody led me to. So first thing is, we spend a lot of our time coaching, facilitating working sessions with sales, sales managers around being more effective, more impactful, and more productive. And it comes down to, in kind of my experience and our experience, is that the foundation of all this is the conversations and the messaging that we present. So how we talk to folks, how we bring across our message. That, that was one, because that's where we spend a lot of our time, and it's the kind of the power of, of human dynamics and all that good stuff. The other thing was a model that was introduced to me, and I think it was Liz Roach, who you both know, who is wonderful and talented and smart and just a lovely person, but it's called the Jahari Window. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but the Jahari Window really connected to me and what we normally do in the course of our day. Let me explain the Jahari Window, because... And, and there's a lot of models out there. This one just really landed with me. And it's created by two guys, two psychologists, Joseph Luft and Harrington Ingram. So they took their first names, Joseph and Harrington, and go Jahari. Been around for about 60 years. But what it does is it gives us a bit of a view into what we do, why we do it, why we don't do things. And I'll always explain it this way. Think about a quadrant. And in those four quadrants, the four quadrants, there are ways that we see ourselves and things we know about ourselves and how others see us and how others know about us. So think about the top left quadrant. It's called the open area. These are things that I know about myself and other people know about me. So think about sales rep and sales manager. It's what I know about myself and what my manager knows about me. In the top right, it could be the blind area, which are one of the things that uh, my manager knows about me that I may not know about me, that I don't see in my performance. Bottom left are going to be what are the things that I know that I keep hidden from my manager that they don't know. And on the bottom right, what are the things that both of us don't know about me? And that's really that uh, unknown area. And I like to focus on the right-hand side of that quadrant again, if I describe it well enough, which is what are the things that I don't see about myself that maybe you do as my manager? And what are the things that neither of us see about ourselves that will really undermine our performance as the sales rep or the sales manager? So it's bringing those things to the fore. And the, the visual I usually bring is an iceberg. 90% of the iceberg is below the water. And that's the 90% that sunk the Titanic. And that's the 90% that's going to sink us and our productivity. Or if we turn those into strengths and expose those, that can really help us accelerate our performance and productivity and you know, hopefully satisfaction in the job and achievement and all those good things. So 
was a long answer to a short question, but those are the two things. What we normally do in the course of the day and this thing called the Jihari window, which for me has really changed how I think about kind of that human dynamics and what we do and why we do the work, maybe why we don't do them. Hey, David, I'm familiar with the Jihari window. What my brain has a hard time with, if my manager or others don't see it in me and I don't see it in me, how in the world do I know what to put in that one little quadrant? We have two partners, as you well know, Kyle, and Visualize. We have value selling that we work with, world-class, world-class methodology, process, mindset, skill set. And we also work with a company called the Objective Management Group. And OMG is the gold standard for competency assessments. So we look at 21 sales and 20 sales management competencies. But underneath each of those 21 competencies for sellers, there are 8 to 12 attributes, skills, or elements that make up that competency. And so what we're trying to do is surface. Let me give you an example, Carlos. So one of the competencies that we know is critical for sellers is reaching decision makers. When we look at people, we say, well, we do or we don't do it. But if we look at why don't we do it, what are the things that we're not doing on them? Maybe we don't see it. I'll give you a couple of examples. Number one is, and I think about the things that affected me early in my career when I was young and dumb. I'm just not young anymore. Uh, it could be that we have a fear of engaging with executives because we have imposter syndrome, that I can't hold a conversation with a CFO or a VP of a business unit. And I had that when I was younger just because I didn't have a business degree. And I'm, you know, I started out my career in sales and I'd have to go talk to, again, an executive. I didn't think that I could talk on that same level. So there was imposter syndrome there. It could be sometimes, Carlos, that we don't believe that reaching decision makers is required. Maybe that's a self-limiting belief. Maybe we believe that our champions can carry the water for us and that they can get the job done when, in fact, most of our champions are not trained salespeople. It could be that we have an overarching need to be liked. And if we need to be liked, that's going to cause us not to do some of the difficult things we need to do, like push our champions, work to get around towards, you know, to get to the decision makers. So that's three of probably eight or 10 things that are underneath reaching decision makers. So one of the things I love to be able to do is to be able to expose those things during conversations. When we do, you know, we do studies on this, we do, we do surveys on it, uh, but to be able to bring this forward to people and if people truly have an open mind when they go through these, uh, it could be a huge catalyst for them. Because I'll tell you, when I was young, you had this idea of imposter syndrome or my need to be liked. And I probably still do have that. And I find sometimes when I'm referring basketball, I'll try to engage the bands or the coaches. I'm trying to make myself more human, but we always want to be liked. So when we think about those things. Does that sometimes bite me in the backside in sales situations? Yeah, I think it does. Less than it used to, though. But I wasn't aware of that. So again, long answer. I hope Carlos, does, it, does that help kind of bring a kind of a day-to-day -to, -day to it? It does. So it kind of makes me think like it's, you know, there's other tools like the OMG assessment to help you identify the things that you and others don't see in yourself. Now, one more question on this thing. So I've done all sorts of assessments along the way. And one of the things, and, and you kind of even alluded to it, is I always hate that the assessment kind of pigeonholes you. So let's say you do an assessment and you don't meet all the competencies. And some of them, the reality is, you know, once you're aware of things, consciously or unconsciously, you can change yourself. People that are introverted can be more extroverted. People that are extroverted can find ways to, to do things that 
they didn't know they could do because it's a kind of learned behaviors over time, right? You said it earlier, hey, you know, there are things that you had in the past that over time you changed and developed. So my point being is when you do an assessment, how much of it could be, hey, this is just the way you are versus, hey, you could change. So I think there's another part of the nuance here, Carlos, is we always have to acknowledge that everything in that assessment might not be 100% perfectly accurate. It could be when you took the assessment, you were in a bad mood, you were rushed, you know, the dog just peed on the carpet, um, you had a cookie for breakfast and your biorhythms were low, whatever it is. But part of it is the acknowledge that the way I describe this to folks who do it is, look, you're, you're going to get the assessment back and I'm going to ask you to look at it three different phases. One is take it, do a quick glance at it because you're going to agree with some stuff and you're going to call BS on other stuff. And it may be BS, it may not be BS, but do a quick kind of scan. Put it aside for a day or two days a week or whatever it is. Read it again in a little bit more depth. Be a little bit more open-minded. This is the sense when I first did this, I looked the first day and kind of went, what do you mean I'm terrible at closing? I'm great at closing. Look at all the stuff I've done. Guess what? As I read it the second time, I read what caused the server to say that. And then the third time, I say, we live another day, week, wherever period it is, and read it in depth. And usually what folks will come to realize is, hmm, there's some truth in this. If some of the things something looks at and kind of goes, no, this is not me, that's fine. But if you can take one, two, maybe three things out of this that are going to help unlock some hidden potential, I think that's huge. And literally, Carlos, that's what I, when I read through on the closing piece, and being with Gartner is a great company. But when you're with a great company like that, some of your sales skills will, will, will atrophy. You know, maybe closing. Now, closing is also the culmination of having great process, great technique, great tools. So I had to come to learn that, okay, if you're trying to be a great closer, you don't need it as much maybe in enterprise sales if you've got a great process and great technique, great tools, as you do if you're selling cell phones in a kiosk in a mall, right? So it's fit for purpose as well. So it's a context of when you take it, knowing that not everything is exactly correct, that some are going to be indicators, some are going to be spot on. And for me, there were two or three things that I just looked at. OMG, and I don't need objective manager of your button. Oh my God, I just didn't see those in myself. And it's gone a long way to help me improve my performance and be more self-aware. And I go back to that actual report probably every six months and kind of go, okay, what do I remember about myself and where do I forget about myself? Sounds like a really good practice. I'm going to have to do it myself. I've never gone through it. The point, Lisa, is, is when we look at it, not everything is spot on truth, right? It can be you know, misdirected. It can be whatever. It can be misinterpreted. But you got to look behind the, you know, behind the surface. No, below the surface, behind the surface. And I get that because like Carlos, I've done a bunch of these over the years. It's like the Myers-Briggs, the DISC profile, the predictive index one. Like, And if you line them up next to each other, it would be very different answers because I took each of those at very different points in my life and my career and my experience. So it would be, you know, potentially see a growth on some of the things that I considered weaknesses and maybe new weaknesses come up. And so I agree. There's like, there's so much that goes into what are we feeling that day? What's happening when we take these tests? And then, yeah, interpreting what's behind that surface. So here's my example. One of my neighbors and a really good friend, he's the chairman of the board of this multi-billion dollar company. When you get to meet the guy, he is quite a charmer. You can throw him into a crowd. 
and he's got guests coming into the box at the stadium and he's meeting everyone. He's shaking hands, looking him in the eye, talking about their families. Amazing. What an outgoing guy. You get to know the guy goes, he's horribly introverted. And what it really is, is, hey, I have to be that person and I have to pay that role in those times to do my job. And he's learned how to do that. And then he's also learned that it's exhausting and he's got to turn it off and create time for himself over weekends just to recharge so that he can do it again. So that that's why sometimes on these tests, as I kind of feel like it's going to say one thing and I feel like people might feel like, oh my God, I'm going to be pigeonholed. This is who I am. But I think you could be a lot more if you're willing to adapt. Yeah, and, and Carlos, a big part of what you're, I think you're alluding to there is just that self-awareness. And oftentimes in that bottom, that the hidden area, there's just things that nobody sees over the top right where I don't see it, but my manager does and, does, and maybe doesn't want to break it up. So I think these conversations are critical, critical to have. I'm fortunate that I've had three or four really, really good mentors in my life. And it's been invaluable because they've told me things that maybe I didn't want to hear or maybe that I didn't just didn't see about myself. Yeah, that way, humans are complex beings. Changing direction a little bit because we alluded to it a few times now, but your top 10 things. So first question I have is, because you mentioned this before we started recording, that they're often each year that you do this, there's often overlap. Let's start there. What are the ones that you see most common crop up each year? I've got five or six right now that we'll talk through if that works for you folks, but these are in no order. And the first one is based on a conversation I had with a group of folks just outside of Toronto this morning, really, really kind of cool conversation. The very first one is about how we differentiate ourselves. So how we differentiate our offerings, right? So this is an art and science piece. This is not easy stuff, but I believe this is a light bulb stuff. And this is where we end up at the intersection of sales, marketing, and product, which is a very cool place to be as long as nobody's throwing stuff. The reality is, is that too often, people will think that being different is being differentiated and they were totally off. They're like, they are so far apart. Being different is one thing, but truly understanding how you differentiate from your competitors, from alternative options, from customers doing it themselves. The ability to differentiate is really, really different. So. When we think about the approach, and I'll give you an example. I think, Lisa, we, we may have talked about this example before, but the approach is really helping organizations understand what sets them apart and how do you articulate that in a non-product-specific way? Because we don't want people pitching product. We want them talking about the capabilities. And what we then do is we reverse engineer that into the problems that we solve for specific personas that they can't solve for themselves or the competitor can't solve for. That is differentiated value. If somebody can agree that you solve a problem that somebody else can't solve, they can't solve for themselves, there is a ton of value in that. But that truly understanding what differentiates you and getting in a way that somebody will quickly understand is critical. And I channel this uh, Gartner analyst by the name of Hank Barnes, who always says, lead to you differentiators, don't lead with them. So the example I'll give you, Lisa, and, and, and you've, you've seen me do this before, but the whole basketball thing. I am probably taller than, I don't know, what, 93% of the population out there, if not more. That makes me different from you, Lisa, the fact that I am so tall. But it may not provide any value in the context of what we're doing right now. Literally, my height has no value in this conversation. It makes me different. It doesn't differentiate me. If I'm stocking shelves with you and there's stuff to be put on the top shelf, 
it's a massive differentiator because it's something that you would need to go through hurdles. You'd need to get a, a chair, stepladder to put stuff up there. It would cause you grief. I can solve that problem for you. But in the context of this conversation, it doesn't. What I am differentiated in this conversation is I've got a certain amount of depth and I've got a certain amount of you know, experience in those assessments that we do. That can differentiate me in this context. There are things, Lisa, that when it comes to prospecting and, and top of funnel stuff, you are an expert. You are vastly differentiated from me. And that's in many of our client conversations when it comes to that. I bring you in there because you have expertise. You can solve problems that I can't solve. So you're totally differentiated. So this ability for companies to understand and message appropriately to the target audiences is huge. It's difficult. And unfortunately, until we bring those parties together, there's no common vision. There's no common view of, okay, what was differentiated? How do we, how do we articulate that? How do we agree on the personas? How do we think about the problems we solve? Because we get into feature function. It's very true. I mean, we go through these exercises all the time. And what's interesting is uh, I love that you're putting it into the context because I do think that that's a missing piece a lot in the conversation. And when we've got a room full of executives and we're asking them, what's your competitive differentiator? What differentiates you? Man, does it ever turn into like cage fighting? It's a type of show, a blank show. And people can get very wrapped around the axle of like, does this make us different or is it a combination of things that makes us different? The whole kind of stacking differentiators, which at the end of the day, then just drives so much more value. And it also differentiated versus whom and for whom, right? Which competitor, which persona. So there's some complexity to the matrix that people have a really hard time simplifying and agreeing on. Could be as versus we need to differentiate against competing priorities. It's not just a competitor. It's not just somebody building something themselves, but there are other priorities across the executive table that what are they going to invest in? So we need to differentiate against paving a parking lot, buying free coffee for the employees, because that's where priorities and money and resources go. So differentiation, really, really intricate, very fun topic, very interesting topic. When the light bulbs go off, it's very, very cool to see. So let's go back to like these top 10 things that really drive accelerate growth. And David, I mean, I just had this conversation yesterday and I've heard it from another podcast we just did. One out of four in general reps are hitting quota. So as people are going into the new year and trying to figure things out, hopefully some of these items that you come up with will help them create more productivity and accelerate success for the team. What's another one? Problems. Problems and pain. We in sales are always thinking about what's the pain, what's the pain chain, what's the problems. Stopping at problems and pain is a huge, huge suck on productivity. If we end up stopping at problems and pain, we may not be a must-have. We may be a nice have. And by that, what I mean is if we don't go higher than pain, if we don't go higher than problems into what are the outcomes that need to be driven that those problems are standing in the way of? We are not connecting to viscerally what somebody has to deliver in their job. And I'm talking about the MBOs, the KPIs, the OKRs that say, and everybody's got them. Everybody has measurable outcomes. If we don't connect to those and then uncover the problems that stand in the way of that, the problems might not be worth solving. So we've got to up-level the conversation and not just stop that, well, here's the two or three pain points they have. What do those pain points stop that person from achieving? Think about sales folks, revenue, bigger contracts, retention, 
marketing. It's marketing activities related or revenue attributed to marketing activities. You know, you could do this across the C-level, CISO, VP of HR, product development. They have metrics. If we don't connect to those, we're on the heap of pile of, well, that's nice to have. But I'm going to invest in those things that me as an executive make me successful, and I can see that direct connection. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example. We did a study with an organization probably two or three years ago, and we looked at 150 opportunities in flight. And sales said that in 76% of those deals, they had uncovered a solid reason to buy, which is outstanding. So if I'm a manager, I'm thrilled. When we did a deep dive, only 31% of those were compelling or based upon true business objectives, what we would call a business issue. What was the result? Only 13% of those were a must-have, 71% were a nice-have, and the total rest were totally unqualified. So salespeople, happy ears, rose-colored glasses, whatever it was, but they were focused just on the problems. They weren't focused on critical problems that stood in the way of achieving business outcomes. That, to me, is number two. And we get so wrapped up in... Sales always talks about pain and problems. Got to go higher than that. We got to go bigger than just that. David, you and I did an SKO for VMware years ago. In my session, I was teamed up with a CIO. And one of the things he talked about is, look, if you're going to come talk to me at my level, come talk to me about problems at my level. Because if you're going to talk about lower level problems, I'm just going to push you right back down to those folks that I pay to address those. Great point. And it's one thing to uncover a reason for them to change. It's another thing to uncover a reason for them to change now. And that's kind of what you're getting to. What are those higher level business drivers, issues, objectives that you can hook your uh, project to that creates that urgency that of something that you got to do something about? Years ago, I've got two. I've got a brother and a sister who are both former executives in big, big brand name companies. And when I was starting this whole process and, and, and I, I asked them, I said, so when you get somebody showing up in your doorstep trying to sell you something, even internally, what are you looking for? And they both said the same word, relevance. You've got to be relevant to what I have to do today. Because to your point, Carlos, if you're coming in and saying, look, we need a new system to do X. If I can't make a connection, how that's going to achieve me, hit my numbers, goodbye. We all say this when we're talking about this particular issue is that this particular technique, I guess you call it, is like going higher because business issues or business imperatives get funded. Problems don't always get funded. And a lot of companies, many, many companies, I'd say every company lives with a certain number of problems and that they don't fund solving. We were just recording another podcast where we were talking about the data problem. And I think about every company I worked for over the years had a data problem. And most of them, with the exception of the last one I was with, did not fund solving that problem. It was like, well, if you're in the record and you see that it's wrong, just to update it. So, you know, like there was not a an actual fund for solving that problem, even though it is a productivity suck, even though it definitely takes time to figure out what is the right phone number, what is the right record, what is the right account I should be working in. There's duplicates and the, all these things. And I, I feel like a lot of listeners right now are going, uh-huh, we've all worked in a CRM with terrible data. That is the perfect example of a problem that doesn't get funded. So you got to go higher every time. Really good point. We'll go to a number three. What's a number three? Let's take a, a different kind of role here. So we were talking about sales self-managers, coaching. So coaching is something that, again, because I spend a lot of time coaching sports. Uh, I, I Now I'm in the position where I get to coach younger basketball officials. 
not coaching the right things and not coaching enough. And by saying the right things, the two big questions is, is how often am I coaching? Am I truly coaching? Am I correcting? So we have to separate. Too often people will say, well, I do coaching during deal reviews. Ah, totally different scenarios. There is coaching opportunities when we do deal reviews, but that's not coaching. Coaching needs to be set aside as a separate kind of moment in time in the week to be able to elevate the individual, challenge them, make them more productive, talk through the Jahari window type stuff. That's those types of conversations that, that need to happen. What does the individual see, need to see to improve their performance? And it's got to be sustainable. When you talk about coaching, I've been doing a lot of leadership coaching lately. And I don't mean to offend anybody that's listening to this thing. But one common theme I'm seeing these days is this lack of ownership and accountability to develop your talent. In other words, you know, we talk about man, frontline managers have the hardest job. I get it. They're trying to learn a new role, which is leadership, when they used to be an individual contributor. But I think sometimes people have to tell them, hey, look, your job is to develop someone that's better than you to take over your role so that you can move on to your next one. And I made that comment to a young leader and he goes, very logical, but it's also a little bit scary. And I go, I get it, but you got to face that fear because the only way you're going to develop your skill set to get to the next, the next, the next, you want to leave behind your leaders that are better than you were. There's a guy, Carlos, that I look to him as a, a basketball coaching mentor and, and people in the Ottawa area will know the guy, John Scobie, he's a legend. He's the guy, he's always kind of the wizard of ours behind the best coaches. And I wasn't one of the best coaches. I just had access to the guy. So we, we sat down probably over a beer, I can imagine that. And I said to him, John, what's your perfect game as a coach? And he said, my perfect game, ball is up, they tip it, I fall asleep. I wake up at the end of the game and I say, how'd we do? And I looked at him and he said, you probably weren't expecting that answer. He said, not at all. He said, I want to be able to coach my team well enough in practice and prepare them well enough. They don't need me to execute. They can listen to their own mind. They can, they can listen to themselves. They can listen to the teammates because we're on the same page. To me, it's the same with coaches. Coaches in, in sales is we have to be able to prepare our teams to execute when we're not there, to do the right things for the right reasons. Give me another example. So according to OMG, right, salespeople whose managers devote 50% of their time to coaching perform 24% higher. So managers just doing what a manager should do inherently gives you a 25% bump in your teams. Now, we did a study, done a couple of these, and they, they tend to be very consistent in terms of what people are coaching to and how often they're coaching. And in one case, an organization I worked with, it turned out that 33% of the time coaching was ad hoc or when asked, and the coaching topics were usually technical, pricing, or proposal help. And to me, that's not coaching. That's instruction. That's managers doing what they were really good at, Carlos, to your point. It's what they were really good at as salespeople. Give that to somebody. I'll let, let them figure out pricing. Let them figure out to coach them on how to be better. So to me, it's just this acknowledgement about what coaching is, what it isn't, and is it part of a daily cadence? And oftentimes we get busy, we get quarter in, we get month in, we get year in. It's like, okay, we'll do it tomorrow. Maintenance work. You, you put on maintenance work on your vehicle and you end up with no oil in your, in your, in your oil pan and your engine seizes. And what do people, most people leave companies because of their managers. So that's number two for me is coaching, not coaching enough or not coaching the right thing. Again, it's that coaching to sustainable improvement. Perfect. 
Well, then to sum up for our listeners, David's top three things that are going to stand in the way of your productivity and effectiveness are differentiation for context, not going higher than the problem and connecting to a true business imperative, and coaching, coaching, coaching. So listeners, those are three things you can take away that are actionable, that you can try tomorrow, starting in the new year, whenever that is, when you hear this podcast, go into work tomorrow and think about those three things because they will drastically change your performance. David, we would love to keep talking to you all day because we don't get enough time to talk to you. So I've got a question for you that we only ask people that are really, truly special on the podcast. For our listeners, something that you took a misstep on or made a mistake with in your career or your personal life that you truly learned something from that they might be able to learn from your story about it. You know what? It happens almost every day. We make these little mistakes without being cognizant of what's going on. I actually had one a couple of weeks ago in a basketball game. I was referring to a basketball game. And it was around communication. And something happened in the game. I made a call. And what I should have done is I should have paused. I should have gone and talked to my partner. And the reason is when we're referring a basketball game, there's 10 players, there's coaches, there's fans. There's only two officials. And we often don't have the right angle on calls. So we call it getting, getting straight-lined. You think about it, you got five or six players. So I made this call. In hindsight, it was the wrong call. What I should have done, and, and I think about this idea of just pausing for a second, being too quick, if we talk about being too fast, right? I should have slowed down because this had an impact on the game. But I should have paused. I should have walked over to my partner and I should have said, hey, what did you see? I guess what I'm saying is I should have put my ego in my back pocket that I got this call. I can see around stuff. Boom. I made the call. It was a mechanics were good. I was forceful. It was just a random call. So it's the same. I, I think about the idea of how we interact with you know, our colleagues, how we interact with our customers, being able to say, hey, I was wrong or I missed something and improve. So Matt, he and I were doing two games together. Second game, something happened. I came out and went, hey, Andy, what'd you get on this one? He said, I got 21. I said, good, because I saw 20 do this. He said, no, it was 21. I had a perfect angle. Great. We got the call right took five seconds. And all of a sudden, then the coaches looked at us, people in the crowd, ah, these guys got their act together. So it comes down to that. I didn't communicate appropriately. I kind of let my ego get in the way and just, you know, maybe it's expediency or being too quick. So it's something that's relatively quick. I'm sure my wife can give you five or six things, but uh, that's one that just resonates because we started talking about something I'm passionate about basketball and it does connect to sales and sales coaching and sales managers, how we communicate, how we communicate in the moment, how we take a moment to make the right decisions. Last question. We call it Acceleration Insight. What's that one piece of advice, be it business or personal, David, that you would share with our listeners that would help them be as successful as you are? So I'm going to give you an answer, and then I'm going to pull it back, and I'm going to give you another answer. Favorite quotes of the year was, be where your feet are. So it means be present. You know, if you're at the dinner table, Put the phone down. If you're out with friends, you know, focus on them. But I'm going to update that because, Lisa, you put a post on LinkedIn the other day about the top 13 things, and, and I, I'm going to butcher the title, but the top 13 things you either have to stop doing or start doing. That is one of the best things that I have read in ages. So if you're listening to this podcast, if you haven't already dozed off or dropped off, go to Lisa's feed, find this. Lisa, what was the title of it? It is the top 13 things you need to give up to be successful. 
Beautiful. And I could never have said it as eloquently as those 13 things in that article. It's just this concise brilliance. So I'm going I'm to push all that to you, Lisa. It's a great post. And I share it every few years. So folks, if you can't find it, yeah, ping me because I, I have it bookmarked. And I used to, when I had a cubicle, I used to have it printed off in my cubicle. It was like the constant reminder of the things that I need to work on. So yeah, thank you for referring that. And I'm glad you found it valuable, as, as valuable as I do. Well, David, thank you so much again for the time today. We know how valuable it is. If any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you about what you're doing with Visualize or, or any of these topics or basketball, how do you prefer that listeners get in touch with you? Three or four different ways. One is you can find me at a local curling rink, basketball, gym, golf course, or LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. I'm on there, Bick, B-Y-C-K, uh, the tall Canadian. Be sure to connect with David on LinkedIn. Thank you again for the time today and uh, hope you get to join us again sometime in the future. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your family, your friends, your coworkers. You can subscribe through YouTube, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I am Lisa Schneer. I am joined by my podcast partner in crime, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.